Our sermon text is from the Good News According to St. Luke, the 13th chapter. There were some present at that very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse, were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, we've been spending a lot of time, because the Gospels do, we've been spending a lot of time in the last weeks talking about this biblical concept of shalom, uh, this idea of universal, harmonious, flourishing, where all is well, everything is, is, uh, is, is bearing fruit, it's growing, it's giving, uh, we receive, everything works together, God and human beings and the world. We've been talking about that a lot, these words that come from the Bible, like shalom, or to, to flourish, to bear fruit. Uh, Jesus, I think, called it the kingdom of God, this place that uh, is invisible to us and yet is here somehow. And there are ways in which the reign and kingdom of God actually takes place in earth and overlaps with us. And sometimes we understand the thin places. And this is a big theme of the Bible, that he wants this for us. That This is what he designed the world for. It's what we still long for at our deepest uh, and it is what we are intended for. Indeed, it is what he is about doing in the world. It's what his mission is, is to bring this back until the kingdom of God covers the entire earth again and fills every heart, and God fills all and all. And last week we saw that one of the dangerous things to shalom is this idea of isolating yourself from God and from others and then dividing from one another, that the fox comes to bring fear to people and make them isolate and divide from one another. And that against this fox, Jesus is like a hen saying, come and I'll protect you. Don't be afraid. We learned that week, and also I would suggest this week, that one of the most destructive forces to shalom, always and today, is our own two things, our own slowness to look inward and take stock of our own lives, along with our quickness to blame and judge others. So this is one of the most dangerous 
habits of heart and mind and relationship in the world that is the most destructive to flourishing and shalom. And that is our first reaction is to point fingers and blame and hide and to not stop and take stock of our own hearts and motivations and lives. We see it in this passage in this way. They asked, in essence, people came and told him about a bad thing that had happened to good people. Why did this bad thing happen? Did they perhaps deserve it? This is how the text starts. And just to get out of the way, Jesus doesn't answer this question. He doesn't answer the why question. There's this term called theodicy, which is the formal intellectual endeavor to uh, make an argument for God and for his goodness, especially with accusations of injustice or unfairness or why could a good God let bad things happen in the world? And frankly, the Bible rarely, if ever, gives a complete theodicy. It seems that every time the question comes up instead, in God's own wisdom, he tells people to turn their own hearts and minds somewhere else from this why question. So sometimes, like he did with Job or with the suffering people in Lamentations, he'll say, you need to turn your eyes off this question of like, why did this happen to them? Why did this happen to me? And look at me. Put your eyes on me, right? Were you there when I put the Pleiades in the sky? Were you there when I made, uh, you know, the Leviathan of the deep? He says, look at me. Other times, like he did with Jonah, he says, you need to look, quit worrying about Jerusalem, and I want you to turn your eyes on Nineveh, and I want you to go there and proclaim my mercy to them. Put your eyes on others. So God, others. And still, at other times, in certain circumstances, like in our passage today, God wants us to turn our attention not just on him or not on others, but actually to turn it on ourselves. And that happens in a particular context, which we're going to explore now. There's this particular time in which we are challenged to look inward. See, they're asking why the Galilean Jews suffered such an awful death. And the context here is judgment and blame of others. That's the context. The question behind this is, who's, who's right, Jesus? The Galileans, I'll explain it. The Galileans, I mean, maybe, maybe they got what they deserved. Who's worthy of a flourishing life? And who's worthy of an early, nasty death? The question also is like, who belongs, Jesus, right? Who's on the right side of history? It's a little bit anachronistic anytime you take modern sort of sociological categories and try to put it on the Bible, but it's a little bit somewhat uh, helpful to say that in the first three verses, the first example of the people slaughtered by Pilate, this is coming from a place that's kind of ideologically righteous. You know, oh, I'm on the right side. I think the right things. I believe the right things. Let me remind you what it says. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. So they're in the temple making sacrifices and Pilate has them slaughtered. And Jesus answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered like this? No, unless you repent, you will perish likewise. See, the problem here is the Pharisees and all those who came to Jesus had outrage at Pilate for doing this, of course, in the temple. And they're saying, join our cause, Jesus. Condemn this warmongering political guy, Pilate. Come out and show you're on the side of the oppressed and the marginalized. Show us you're one of us on the revolution. You're ready for the overthrow, okay? This could be 
I'm going to do left, right, center. It's just ideological. It could be like, why weren't you with us on the Capitol on January 6th? Or why weren't you with us in the streets when we were rioting for Black Lives Matter? It doesn't really matter. It's that same posture of, are you with us, Jesus? We've got the right cause, man. It's our ideology. Come on. Endorse us and put them down. Didn't, didn't we want to point out who the enemy is? And see, he has no, he takes no cause with this. He turns their attention off of others and off of all the problems and off of their ideology. And he says, why don't you deal with yourself? Unless you repent, you will die too. He makes them take their eyes off the speck in their overlord's eyes and their neighbor's eyes and to look at the plank in their own. Even though in this case, he probably has sympathy with their cause, okay? He probably has sympathy with their cause, we would imagine. He confronts Pilate himself later. He wants to keep the temple a place of prayer. He turns away the sword. Of course, he could have condemned these things. But his focus is not just on politics out there, but on people right in front of him. His focus is on the people right in front of him. And right now, if they want to have flourishing and shalom, they need to put their fingers down and come clean before God. In the same way, and I'll move quick through it, there's a moral righteous, not just the ideologically righteous, but the morally righteous. I see this maybe a little bit more sort of in conservative cultures, uh, verses four through five. He just says, do you want me to tell you about the 18? The tower just fell over on them. Do you think they were worse than everyone else? No. You repent or you too will perish someday. It could just be an accident. You're walking around. Air conditioner falls out of the unit, lands on your head. See, what was going on here, of course, you've probably heard this at some time, is that people are always looking for a cause and effect. If someone had an accident, it was like, oof. He probably hadn't been tithing, right? Or ooh, maybe she was seeing the baker behind her husband's back. Or ooh, whatever. This is a culture in which to be morally righteous, it means to be worthy before God. And so to be morally unfit and morally imperfect is some way to deserve what's coming to you. And Jesus says, no, there's no good guys in this story. There's no mainstream, middle-class, have-it-all-together people that deserve anything. He's saying, if we're blaming, we are in the wrong place. If we're taking the high road ideologically, morally, religiously, whatever it may be, our accomplishments, our secular success, we're in the wrong frame of mind that we need to start and look at ourselves. I love this verse, and I've thought about it a lot this year. It's Isaiah 57, and it says, The Lord, the Most High, all right, we're confronted with the Holy One. Where does he live? And he says, like, where are you going to find me? Where can I encounter this presence, this fullness that brings shalom and life? He says, I'll tell you where I live. I dwell in the high and holy place. And with the one with a contrite and humble heart. And there's not actually an and in the Hebrew. So it's, I dwell in the high, holy place with the contrite and humble heart. It's almost as if you start with your heart and you're 
in a state of contrition, in a state of, oh, I'm sorry, what could I have done better? I'm open, I, I, I need, I lack, I'm not it myself. I don't have all the answers. I don't have all the moral superiority. I don't have the willpower. I don't, oh, I humble myself. That that is the space created for a holy place for God to dwell. That that's where his Holy Spirit comes in and lives. And that is also how the Holy Spirit carves out new room in us. Through humility, through contrition, the Lord dwells in us. That's why, of course, Jesus said this clearly. I, th- I used a couple of Jesus' other sayings and other New Testament things just to frame this text as we move through. It's really simple. I think the first move he's saying to them is take the log out of your own eye before you try to get the speck in someone else's eye. You've heard that phrase before. And he says, what that looks like for you is repenting. Uh, and I say this every time we use the word repent, man, it is such a religious word that I don't think we even know what it means anymore. It's, it's usually some street preacher trying to make someone feel really terrible about themselves and just see how much more sinful they are than they ever imagined and repent and this sort of thing. Or we do it to ourselves. And I've heard some of us talk about this during Lent, just like, oh, I need to, I need to keep repenting, which I think is, is true. Uh, a Christian life is one of continual repentance. That's what we're learning. It's just a pilgrimage of repentance over and over again. Uh, and the word is metanoia. So it can just mean meta and then noia is mind. So like you have a, a transfer, a, 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 a mind that is above the usual dichotomies and, and, and distances and barriers and binaries that we put up in life. And it, it goes to a new realm, God's realm, his view. It's a change of idea. It's a turning around of what you think, a change in what you think, a turning around of where you're going. And one of the ways I've been thinking about this this week, I was just talking to my wife about this yesterday, um, one, one analogy that's helping me as I think about myself and what it means to repent is I think we're used to thinking just in terms of like, ooh, there's like the bad me. And then I think if I believe the Bible that there's like a, the good me too, I hope, maybe through the Holy Spirit. And like these two are like equally at war, like, you know, like black dog, white dog living inside of me fighting and which one's going to win. Um, and so I fed the black dog a little too much today. I need to repent and feed the white dog. And, you know, there's some truth to that probably. But I wonder if what's not more helpful, especially in the context of this passage when Jesus says repent, is to think not just in terms of like true self, false self, or like sinful self, or uh, uh, holy self, or even just like in terms of flesh uh, and spirit, which is all, some of those are biblical, are biblical metaphors for sure. Another one might be to think in terms of your surface self and your deep self. The surface self can have good and bad, but it's just where we tend to default a lot of our time. Oh, that news. Can you believe those people? Oh, I'm so outraged. Oh, wait. Oh, yeah, sure. I'll go to dinner. That sounds great. Wait, I'm still mad at you about this. And also, I have to get that done tomorrow. And I didn't get this done. And I have to change the oil. And oh, man, my clothes are kind of shabby. And I can't pay rent. And I really feel strongly about this. That's who I think I really am. Just kind of that churn, you know, of trying to find your place in the world, surface life. Now, some of that can be bad, but some of it can be good. It's just that Jesus is saying, you know, you can't live your life there. You need to go to the depth, down to the deepest you, down to that place where you return to like something deeper, more central, underneath the waters, where it's not moving so quick from just wind chop, but there's something deep and lasting down there. 
to repent, to go to a deeper place, a deeper you, the sort of eternal you, the one that has these ancient longings that you're aware of when things slow down or when you're alone or when you're thinking deep thoughts or you're moved by great beauty and not just the one that's churning all the time. I won't read this whole thing, but just to make an argument, go back and read um, Luke chapter 12 later. I think I actually cut it out so I wouldn't be tempted to read it. It's basically Jesus saying, you know, kind of, it's pretty close to what he did in the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying, look, you you need to repent. You're so busy worried about your clothing and food. Trust God, come back to me. You know, so he kind of hits all the surface stuff. So just go read that if you, if you want to see how he does it out. I think this point of repentance is actually, he just addressed all the surface stuff that we face every day, where we're nervous and afraid, or we point and we blame, or we feel good or we feel bad. He addresses all that and he says, change your mind, go deeper, come to the kingdom, come to God. Turn back to your source and center, get deep. And then we get to this passage, which reminds us of death. And there's another concept here, it's in Latin, called memento mori, and it means remember that you will die. Remember death. And this is an ancient Christian tradition that we live our lives thinking, I'm not guaranteed the walk home. I wake up and the first thing I think is like, oh, I'm not looking forward to anything today, I'll go back to sleep. Or some of you, chores, chores, things to do. And it's saying to wake up and say, wow, I've been given the gift of breath and day. And that's not guaranteed. What will I do? As the poet Mary Oliver said, with my one wild and precious life, what will I do with my one wild and precious today? Remember that you're going to die. That's what Jesus is doing here. That's what repentance means in this passage. Get off the surface of things. They They die. Quit worrying about why or how or what or whether they stacked up or how you stack up. And just remember right now that in the grace of God, you exist. You have life. You are called to flourishing. And if you want to do that, quit pointing fingers. Go deep. Change your mind. Repent. Get, get back with me and bear fruit. That's the second thing he says, basically. He starts talking about a fig tree planted in a vineyard that's not bearing fruit. And so they're thinking of tearing it down. You know, it's wasting space. And the the vine dresser says, no, let it alone. Leave it alone for a year and we'll dig around it. We'll put on manure. If it should bear fruit next year, well, good. If not, you can cut it down then. See, here Jesus talks about, he says, repent. And here's what it's going to look like to go deep, right? Jesus talks about a fig tree that produces no fruit. And perhaps this reference is lost on you. uh, But the original audience would have understood it very well. In the Old Testament, the fig tree referred to the people of Israel, that they were his beloved fig tree. And when God's people loved God, they would bear fruit. But when they would refuse to listen to him, or they would chase after other gods, or they wouldn't worship him, or let his character also become to t- come to typify their corporate life, then they would wither up and become useless, fruitless. The prophets were often warning Israel for centuries that they were turning away from their source and their center and their depth and turning to other things, and so they weren't bearing fruit. And they were like a fig tree that was dried up or going to be cut off or sent away to find other vines that could be grafted in from other nations that would call upon God. 
And Jesus has been preaching now and performing miracles and calling the people of Israel to repent and follow him. But at this point in his ministry, very few have responded to this call. And he's on his way to Jerusalem, to the cross, and to the resurrection. The time is growing short. And he's saying, the time is now. It's time. Come back to your source. There's this verse in Deuteronomy that says this. Is there any man who has planted a vineyard and has not enjoyed its fruit? In other words, like, if I planted a vineyard, I get to eat from it. And in context, it's God saying that about his people. He's saying that, people, I've made you. I've given you everything. I've tended to you. Change your mind with all this surface stuff and get back to the roots. Come to me. Jesus said it in other ways. But you can be sure that if you are pointing your finger... You are not going deep into the source. You're up here still. Jesus, of course, put it this way. Abide in the vine that you may bear fruit. He says, I'm the true vine. My father's the vine dresser. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. But every branch that bears fruit, he prunes in order that it may bear more fruit. Think about this verse as you walk around in the next few weeks and see all the flowers come out and people that are good at landscaping help them to bear fruit. Abide in me, he says, and I in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. And you can't either unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Just like the Father loves me, I love you. Abide in my love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. See, Going deep is about bearing fruit and flourishing personally and corporately. It's about uh, receiving, uh, giving God glory and bringing glory to him as we begin to flower and fruit. And he says, this is, happens when you get deep and know how much I love you, when you're dwelling in my love and in my joy, which I long to give to you. And if we begin to bear fruit, and this is the closing image for just a couple minutes we begin to bear fruit, that fruit begins to be tasted and shared and become a feast for others. And we talked about this a little bit last week, but I think Jesus is getting that here in the corporate context. The fig tree is not just an individual. We tend to think about individuals. And we spent all this time saying, you, 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 you need to do your own business, right? But the goal is that together we are the branches in a vine. Together we are a part of this fig tree bearing fruit. And so as we heard last week, we hear again that part of what we're growing up into is to be a mature body of Christ, to be a part of him. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, God has put the body together, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it so that there should be no division in the body, that its parts should have equal concern for one another. If one part of Christ's body, the church, suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. He says later in Ephesians, Therefore I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, putting up with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit Through the bond of peace, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. 
See, this is what it means in this life to be a part of the kingdom of God is that we bear fruit by abide, abiding in Jesus, right? Taking the log out of our own eye, quit pointing the finger, go deep to our depths, abide in Jesus, reconnect with his love and his joy through his spirit, and then we begin to bear fruit for one another. And you get to bring a basket of fruit to me from you and your family and your friends. And my parish group brings to you a basket that has different kind of fruits. And we all intermingle and we worship together. And isn't this such a much more beautiful alternative to judgment and condemnation, take down those people and vindicate me. It's instead saying we all live by the grace of God and none of us are more or less deserving of his grace than the next person. The only thing that is certain is that we have a loving God who is unbelievably patient. He says, you know what? That judgment thing, even with these people, man, give them time. Give them, give them a whole other year. Let me try another season. I'm going to water it. I'm going to tend to it. I'm going to put a whole bunch of manure on it, right? And maybe that's a good image to close with because you know what manure is. Should I paint you a picture? There's a very real sense in which it's death. It's waste. It's the leftovers. And somehow that death becomes life when you take it and put it in the ground and put seeds in it and water it. That when we die to ourselves, somehow that is the condition for us to be able to grow in God and to bear fruit. He says, I'm going to add a whole bunch of this stuff to my people that they may bear fruit. And fruit is always for a feast. Friends, we'll talk about this more in the weeks to come, but it is becoming at least plausible that our community here, as small as we are, as remnant as we feel after the last couple of years, as tired as some of us are, will be called to open up our homes and our place of worship and our, our community life and all that we are to other people who want to come and be a part of us. And we're going to have to make room and practice deep hospitality for them. We're going to have to see this dismembered body, not only of the church in New York after the pandemic, but of our own network that's split up into pieces to see it come back together, perhaps, at least some of it, to be put back together as pieces to have skin grafts, to be re-ligamented, which is what the word religion means in Latin, to be re-ligamented, to put back together, to begin to bear fruit, to grow muscles and to strengthen. And to do this, we're going to have to always not be looking at someone else and whether they deserve to get in on this or whether I get to be right or keep my precious little thing that I love, but instead to say, man, what grace I live in, what grace you live in. How can I help? How can I say I'm sorry? How can I even grow? How can I bear fruit for you? And what fruit do you have to share with me and how can we grow together as one body in Christ? Look at yourself. Go deep and abide and bear fruit for the body. May God give us this grace to do that this season and Easter and the seasons to come. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.
Thank you.